0: This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. It's getting wintry here in New Orleans, which means it's gray and damp with the wet cold that's hard to escape. Not exactly winter wonderland, but it's what we get. Today is a special show for me because I have Terry Roach of The Roaches as my guest. A lot of folk music didn't reach me as a young man because I needed more energy and intensity from my music at the time. The Roaches did because they didn't sound reverent for folk niceties. Everything sounded homemade from their harmonies to their song structures, which displayed the kind of idiosyncrasies that I love in all music. When they released their Christmas album, We Three Kings in 1990, it gave me everything I liked about them. The largely acapella versions were beautiful in their way as they made these well-worn Christmas classics an expression of their relationship as a family. Some of the most familiar songs in Western culture seem personal when they sang them. We'll get to my conversation with Terry in moments, but first, a little week before Christmas business. If you want this year's 12 Songs Christmas mix, this is your last chance to email alex at myspilt milk and get one. A few weeks back, I interviewed Jim Goodwin of Christmas Underground. And this week he posted his 2022 Christmas mix. As did Brad Ross McLeod, who runs the Christmas MP3 blog, fa Brad was also a guest, I think in 2019. They couldn't be more different. Jim's is focused on contemporary Christmas music, while Brad's is the product of some serious vinyl archaeology. But both were a lot of fun. You can find links to both of them at their respective websites, and I'll put links to them in the show notes. One new version of a Christmas classic that has broken through with me this year is from Montreal's Nikki Yanofsky. She started as a pop singer who drifted into jazz. For the holiday season, she released versions of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas and Marshmallow World. I don't have many instances of people finding something to do with Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas that isn't there in Judy Garland's version, and Nikki isn't all that different. Likeable, but I like the way the pop nature of Marshmallow World brings out that pop side of Yunovsky, even in a jazz context. We'll hear that, then be back with more on twelve songs.
1: It's a marshmallow world in the winter when the snow comes to cover the ground. It's the time to play. It's a whipped cream day. I wait for it the whole year round. Those are marshmallow clouds being friendly. In the arms of the evergreen trees And the sun is red like a pumpkin head It's shining so your nose won't breeze The world is a snowball
0: Terry Roach was up for a conversation because she recently released a book, Can You See That Sun? Credited to Terry and Maggie Roach. It's a short book that tells a story of their first stab at the music industry and the way the music industry kind of stabbed back. They started as a folk duo that ended up with a record contract after Paul Simon heard them, liked them, and referred them to his business partner. The process of making the album Seductive Reasoning turned out to be a challenging one because the homespun charms that drew me to the roaches left them out of step in the early 1970s when two producers tapped out of the project before David Hood, the bassist for Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, took over. The book features lyrics, memories, drawings, and QR codes linking to live performances of songs from the album that people recorded when Terry and Maggie were on tour. Now, the book stands as kind of a love letter to Maggie, who died a few years back from cancer. Our conversation starts with the book, so let's begin with a song from it. This is, If You Emptied Out All Your Pockets, You Could Not Make the Change. We'll be back on the other side with Terry Roach on 12 Songs.
1: Before I went to jail When I was saying that I was free You was so lined up down the avenue Just about as far as I can see You got one eye on the How did,
0: the book, uh, how did the book project begin?
2: Well, um, first of all, Alex, do you have a copy of the book? Yes, I do. Oh, okay, great. Because <clears throat> it's, um, as you may have discovered, it's, it's a very interactive thing where you have uh, the QR codes that take you to the song that you're looking at the lyrics of. So the whole project began about four years ago when someone sent me a recording of my sister Maggie and I, um, and I didn't have any recordings of us because, uh, well, you know, this repertoire was something we did when we were teenagers and it, it turned into um, a lot of the songs went on an album called Seductive Reasoning, which came out on Columbia Records in 1975. But previous to then, we, we had a lot of recordings of ourselves since we were 12. In fact, the, the title song uh, to this, Can You See That Sun?" is a song that Maggie and I wrote when we were 12. I was 12. She was 13. Right. We had just learned to play guitar from the TV, you know. So we had we had this repertoire of, of teenage songs. and But what happened was um, in her early 20s, Maggie threw all of the recordings of us in the incinerator, in the building where we live. Wow. So that's kind of leading up to this project because five years ago or four years ago, someone sends me a recording of the two of us live in front of an audience. So first of all, there are no roaches recordings live with with an audience. And then to hear, this was going back 50 years, to hear the song as it was before it went into the studio and was produced on the Seductive Reasoning record. So, the person who contacted me told me that his friend, who's an engineer, uh, his name is Pat Tessatori, he's an uh, engineer up in Albany, New York. And so, he had two complete shows of me and Maggie just by ourselves you know, and it was mixed straight to the board, so there was no, it wasn't like on a, a console where you were gonna, he mixed it on the fly. And then another person had sent, years ago, uh, Doug Sklar, who's out in San Diego, he's actually in San Diego, he had sent some recordings to Maggie um, years ago, and he got in touch with me and sent them again to me, because of course, She didn't keep them. So anyway, um, so now I had about 65 all told version, you know, some versions of the same songs. And that was the beginning of thinking to do the project.
0: Right. Now, what did you think hearing these songs again after so long?
2: Well, first of all, it was very emotional experience for me, because by now, of course, Maggie died in 2017. I received these recordings in 2019, so, you know, uh, normally I would call her up and say, check this out, you know, like, holy shit, you know. I, um, maybe shouldn't have said that word, but... You're okay. Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, <clears throat> Yeah. So, you know, here they were, you know, it was very emotional, you know, to listen to the sound of of just the two of us without any production, you know, and and also live so that things were not corrected or, you know, punched in or that kind of thing. It was just what it was, you know. And I just thought this was really great, this repertoire, you know, and at the time. 50 years ago we were under a lot of pressure to make a commercial sounding record with seductive reasoning so in a in a way my, the book can you see that son it's kind of the story of how we wound up even being in the position to make a record and of course the last chapter of the book is called the folder and that is when we decided to quit um, the music business, we were we were we were left feeling very defeated. Like what we were doing was not either commercial enough or good enough, or we weren't trained. You know, we had never had a music lesson. You know, we had come up with this uh, this music because we had been sent on tour all over the country to colleges. And so it was a two year uh, period of being hired to go to college campuses and play like in the student union. We went to LSU, it was one of the places we went. We went, we did a bunch of Louisiana actually. Um, They sent us to all these states. We were from New Jersey, we had never been anywhere and all of a sudden we're traveling around the United States to all these different places and 1970 there's no internet you know you didn't have red states and blue states at all you know it was like you'd pass from one state to another and there would be the sign you know welcome to Iowa and so it's like we got to know like the geography of the lower 48 you know right by going through it, and at one point, I actually was able to draw for memory the the states.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great! So,
2: yeah, it was it was it was kind of a trick I would bring out in order to show off, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I was going to ask you about the folder chapter, and and for those who haven't read it yet, you, you basically you were you went into an office to practice and on the desk on the desk in the office you saw a folder where basically someone from the record company had basically counted off everything they saw that was one of your that were your shortcomings and you mention in it that you eventually spoke to the person whose desk it was who didn't write it he he was the one who received it and you said you spoke to him but you don't say what happened
2: oh, well, how did that conversation well, go Okay, first of all, the person whose desk it was, was Michael Tannen, who was Paul Simon's business partner and lawyer at the time. And this was back in this was probably 1975, which is when that record came out. And Michael was managing us and he would give us the keys to his office in New York to use the piano there to rehearse because we didn't have a piano in our apartment. So, you know, so we would go there on the weekends when there were no people in the office. And we happened to see this folder. I mean, imagine you see a folder with your name on it on someone's desk, you know, it's like Maggie and Terry Roach, right right on top of, you know, other papers. We open it up and the person who wrote the letter that was in there was someone in the record company Um, And actually, I think it was either L.A. or San Diego where we had done a show and this guy had taken us out to dinner, he and his wife, and they appeared to have enjoyed the show. You know, they were very nice to us. So we were kind of shocked to see that someone who would have kind of pretended that they liked what we did. Would write something like this, you know. It was shocking and it was humiliating, you know. And we and we felt almost like we don't belong, trying to you know make a, a commercial record for Columbia Records. You know, we just don't belong in this situation. And so, and so we announced to to Michael and Paul and the record company that we were quitting. Uh, the music business, and we um, gave up our little studio apartment in New York, and we moved down to Hammond, Louisiana, into the Kung Fu Temple. And the conversation at the end of that chapter, Michael Tannen is the per- is the person who's the executive producer of of the book. If right. you look in the credits, you'll see his name as executive producer. And a lot of it we we've been working on the book together for the last 3 or 4 years. And one of the things we did was all these interviews with people that remember me and Maggie from the coffee house touring and people who worked with us, you know, produced the record people who were influenced by the record later after it came out. So we did all these interviews, and one of the interviews was me interviewing with Michael, you know, both of us just kind of having a conversation. So I told him the story about the folder on his desk in that interview. I thought he knew that.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: (laughs) He didn't. He never heard that. So imagine we here. We were looking at each other on mic, you know, and I, I just you know described how we picked up the folder on his desk. And at first, I could see that in his face that like you mean you took something off my desk that you know and read it. (laughs) You know, there was a moment of feeling like I have to justify that for some reason. But that's when he heard the story. And one of the things that came out in a lot of the interviews, like with him and with Paul Samuel Smith and with David Hood down in Muscle Shoals, because we went down there to work on the record. One of the things that came out of sort of a running theme through these interviews was how Maggie and I were so bonded together that we would not, it was hard for anyone to get in between. So we would make a decision like we're quitting and we would just make the decision, announce it, and there would be no discussion. And I really think that a lot of the reason that was is that we had spent two years traveling around the whole United States by ourselves uh, you know, and we had gotten very close and we had gotten used to looking out for each other and, you know, protecting each other. So, I, I, I you know, now I look back and I think it, it probably would have been easier for everyone to work with us if they could have, if we would have discussed something like this with Michael or with Paul.
1: Eddie said the beat was wrong. didn't like the style. The boy with the beard in the corner left in the middle of the song. He didn't stay very long. Eddie said the lights were low. Tom said the treble was high.
0: You know, one of the things I was thinking when I read that and and this sort of while listening to the record and thinking particularly about Malachy's and which, and Malachy starts off with y'all talking about people's, you know, people talking about your shortcomings at a bar and, and what they didn't like about your songs. And I wondered if that experience and seeing that folder hit a... Sort of an insecurity that was uh, that you already had, that you wondered that at the time of you wondered if this was really your place, and if this was really if, if you had what Columbia was looking for.
2: Well, well, what happened is the progression of us, you know, becoming uh, under contract to Columbia Records. It, it Malakies happened way before that. Malachy's was. I was underage. I think I was maybe 16 when we had, when we got, you know, this little gig in a bar. So there we were, you know, two teenage girls in a bar who did not have a lot of um, experience under our belt, but we did, Maggie wrote we learned how to play the guitar from the TV, from the show on TV, and Maggie immediately started writing these songs, and then she would teach them to me, and I'd figure out guitar parts, and we'd have the vocals going, and we thought we were great, you know? And then, you know, and then when we met Paul Simon, who um, was teaching a songwriting class, and we were told about the songwriting class, by Terry Thal, who was married at the time to Dave Van Ronk. Do you know Dave's work? Yes. So Terry Thal was the person who had us audition for the Coffee House circuit, and also told us about Paul Simon and his songwriting class. And so we sort of went over there and and. Uh, was waiting in the lobby for him to come into the building, you know, and that's how we met Paul. Right. And that was before going on, on tour and stuff. So, what happened was when we came back off the tour after two years of this, we called him up because by now we had this uh, repertoire. You know, it's like, wait till you hear these songs. <laughs> so, he, we worked with a lot of the that if you look at There Goes Ryman and Simon, you'll see a lot of the same musicians as were on Seductive Reasoning, including us. He had us sing on record. So, but what happened was we had never had music lessons. So we didn't know the one chord, the four chord, the six chord, you know, we didn't know the terminology that people were using and we were having the benefit of working with these, you know, working in Muscle Shoals with with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. I mean, I learned so much by that experience, but at the same time was totally intimidated because it was making us realize what we didn't know and that, oh my God, we should have learned this by now, or we should have gone to school for this or, you know, and we just, we, we freaked out and, and got intimidated. But now when I listen to what it was that we were doing, I feel, you know, I really feel for those two teenage girls, uh, you know, I don't identify with them anymore, because I'm an older person. But I feel for them. And I'm like, you guys were great. <laughs> yeah. Ha,
0: ha, 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 ha. I one thing, you know, I, I get all of that. One of the things I've always thought was so, I've always loved about the roaches and, and came back to me when I was looking at this, is that your songs feel so specific to you and so individual, mm-hmm. like when I look at the lyric sheet, I can't imagine for a second how these songs are going to sound. That I can't look at it and identify where's the chorus, where's the bridge, where's that they they look like somebody thought a thought and then figured out how to put that thought to music. And I think that's so appealing and so distinctive and... So, you know, it's so what I look for in almost all music is I wanted to hear individual voices, but I could also imagine where as young women in a world that really does like nice, clear choruses, nice, clear verses, nice, clear bridges, that there had to be a lot of kind of pushing uphill or feeling like you were the square peg.
2: Yes, I think we were swimming against the current of the time, which was the early 1970s. You know, later, when you had, like, I think it was maybe in the 90s where Lilith Fair came along, and now, all of a sudden, being a female singer-songwriter, playing your own guitars, became popular. We had to fight with people about the fact that we wanted to play those guitars because we didn't know how to play with a band. We had never played with anybody except each other, which is very odd. I mean, most people, they had friends that they played with in high school or something. We just didn't have any of that. You know, we were we were burrowed into this, this thing with each other that It never occurred to me I was supposed to know how to play a Beatles song. I love the Beatles, but we were doing this thing that we we did, you know. And so I think that's very unusual because today um, I teach guitar, you know, and I get a lot of young people, you know, who are starting out, some of whom just want to play for fun and some who have. Um, aspirations toward doing it professionally. And what I notice is often the first question is, well, should I go to school or should I get a manager or should I make a YouTube video? It's like you have people making YouTube videos of their rehearsals, you know? And so I think what we did was we just burrowed in and did this music. And it got some attention because of the nature of what it was, you know. So I always tell people, just do
1: it. She came on the stage in a dress like the sky. She had painted a sunset around. Charmed answer, pride, and how pretty and high and shy she is. Pretty and high and
0: shy. And I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. I live, you know, I'm here in New Orleans, and it's, and it's obviously a very, you know, legendary music city. And one thing that was really interesting is periodically seeing people who have a lot of ability and that they come here and they play and, and it takes, they can move into existing forms and into bands and play and do whatever they need to do. But in many cases, it takes them a long time to figure out what's the music that they should be making and what's the music that they're the only people who could make it. And mm-hmm. it felt like you had the opposite experience, that the one thing you found right away was what was the music that was yours, rather than yeah. just, you know here's, a, here's some songs we can play. You went straight to, what, what are our songs? What's our music? That, that had to yeah, be really yeah. clarifying.
2: I think that's probably a good description of, of how we got started. And what we ran into was when we thought we thought we thought Paul Simon's going to listen to Malakies and he's going to be like, take these girls right into the studio and let's do this. <laughs> you know, instead of that, he said, "You need to take music lessons." And so he paid. You know, they signed us, Michael and Paul, to their production deal, and um, they subsidized us for a couple years I think they would call that artist development where you are now going to go take music lessons and uh, so now we're learning about the names of chords and things for the first time at the same time as we're about to go in the studio right. with all these heavy hitters studio musicians you know and in a time when I remember being a uh, down there in Muscle Shoals and Barry Beckett, you know, the piano player, the, you know, the big forceful uh, guy in that, in the Swampers, in the rhythm section, he quit because he was supposed to produce our tracks and he threw up his hands. He said, I don't know how to play with these two people. (laughs) They're insisting that we play behind them. And they were used to, somebody comes down there and they you know, give you that groove that's going to get you on the radio and that's the end of the story. But David Hood and Jimmy Johnson, David, the bass player, and Jimmy, um, rhythm guitar, they stepped up and said, we'll take over the job of producing this. And that saved it. I mean, they were going to send us back to New York. And, you know, that would have been the end of, of the project or the middle of the project. But I learned a lot. Like Jimmy at one point took me aside and explained about that I had to play patterns for the rhythm guitar to get that groove. You have you have to play patterns. I'd never thought of that or heard that. But when I look back on it, I think it's like having taken a batting lesson from Babe Ruth or uh, something. Uh, you know what uh, I mean? Uh, sure. It's like, you know, Jimmy Johnson t- taught me how to play the the groove on the rhythm guitar part.
0: Right.
2: And, that, and that's why people with this release, sometimes people are putting down the Seductive Reasoning record as if it's an either or, like, oh, these sound, I like these better, or I like these worse. But really, these are... These are the little baby steps that led to that record. Right.
0: I, I want to now move forward to talk a little about the Christmas music. And I saw in an interview that Suzy said that Chris singing Christmas carols is how the three of you started singing together. Is that your memory?
2: Yes, because what happened was when Maggie and I quit and we went down to Hammond and um, eventually... We came back to New York and um, we got jobs. You know, wherever we went, we would get waitress jobs or this time we were hired to be the bartenders at Folk City, which was a club that we also um, frequented. And um, so it was Christmas time and Susie was in college, but she came into the city And the three of us got together and we worked up three part arrangements of Christmas carols and we went out in the street and we would like go into uh, a a bar, you know, in the village mainly, um, or we'd go out in the street and put out the hat, you know, and we'd sing these three part uh, things. And then when Christmas was over, of course, I mean, the day after Christmas, no one wants to hear a Christmas song. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, the day after, it's over. So we had these arrangements. And it was like, now what do we do? And Maggie had written the Hammond song. So we said, well, let's take that song that Maggie wrote and and do the same thing with it. Work into Work three parts and, you know, do our thing with it. And that was the beginning of the trio of, of the roaches.
0: Oh, how interesting. So we all did Christmas songs. Was this, was this something that was a part of your family life growing
2: up? Oh yeah. Well, Christmas, you know, we went to Catholic school, so we were in the choir and Christmas caroling. I remember going, you know, around the neighborhood with friends Christmas caroling and, um, you know, and this, the thing about those songs is that they're so familiar to people that it's not like you're singing something that other people have never heard before. You know, um, and so years later, when we were um, had made you know five or six albums, we were asked by our record company to do a Christmas album and this was a natural we were like
1: oh boy
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know like hold on, hold on to your hat you know because we we had all of this um karma about the christmas songs and then we really had a lot of fun making that record you know the we three kings yeah
1: it's lovely, we the first lay right together with you. friends are calling you. Come on, it's lovely, we're the first lay right together with you. Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, let's go. Let's look at the show. We're riding in wonderland of snow. Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up.
0: Since I, since I don't sing well, um, I... I I don't sing on key as far as I can tell. Um, but, uh, so I find, I find singing kind of beautifully mystifying and I have friends who sing harmony and who love singing harmony and who find it to be just like a special form of communication with the person they're harmonizing with. Can you talk about harmonizing with your sisters and sort of what's, you know, what that meant to you and sort of whatever associations you have with that experience?
2: Well, first of all, um, I've been told that people in the same family have often have similar shaped vocal cords, like the same way you might have the same nose as your brother or your sister. And so that's why the blend, which they call the brother's blend, That's why that blend happens often with siblings. Um, So there's that feeling of just, you know, kind of easing. It's like coming onto the highway on a ramp and all of a sudden everybody's in the right lane, you know? So there's that ease of it that's beautiful. Um, I did not start out having an ear for harmony. Maggie always did from when she was a little kid. She could sing along with a record and she'd be singing something, not the melody. Um, but I so I learned you know how to do the the harmony parts. But um, my favorite advice I've ever heard about singing harmony was that I heard that Pete Seeger, Told people, and he was, of course, a very trained musician and stuff. But what he said was, he said, just get on a different note from your neighbor. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha ha. And you know, the funny thing is, you'd be amazed at how, when you do that, you find something, and you don't have to know what it is that you've found. And it might not be in tune. I'm not the biggest fan of, of being completely in tune. I'm not like a intonation freak. I've never really had that kind of a voice, you know. So I've always kind of slid around a little bit. And I like the sound of that. You know, I, I like the sound of people. The spirit of it and the energy of it is something I respond to more than just the intonation. Right. Right.
0: I'm not sure you you could be in a, be in a position to know this because you're your sisters and did does singing harmony make you feel in some way closer to your sisters?
2: Um. Well, closer than what? I uh, mean, now,
0: that's, that's kind of the question. I was as like, I was thinking, I was like, how would you? You know, it's like you know, living your. You know how how do you gauge you know, sort of how you live your? You know. these kind of relationships I guess what I'm curious is I'm not sure there's a good way to ask like I'm fascinated by does it make you feel close in some way to them or is it a special relationship
2: you know know, we've never been kind of sentimental about being sisters people have sort of thought we might be you know they say oh you're sisters we've always we're kind of normal we fought a lot you know bickering you know with each other. And I think that's one of the reasons why the tr- the trio and also the duo, the differences between you, you know? So you concentrated on the song, you concentrated on the work and you're both, you're all plugging into that thing, you know? But in general, you have your gripes with each other and your, your rivalries and things like that. So we were sort of normal in that way. Although I must say, Maggie and I, I think, were particularly close at a particular time in our lives, and that was what I'm really celebrating with this book, because I feel like hearing it, just the two of us like that, after 50 years, you know, yeah. <laughs> is really, I thought, wow, I'd like to put this out.
1: Joy to the
0: One of the things I was thinking about while with uh, We Three Kings is that about half the songs on the album are, are faith-based songs. I know you said you went to you went to a Catholic a Catholic school. Did was your family spiritual?
2: Well, we were raised going to church in the Catholic Church, and I must say, for me, the most beautiful uh, of the Christmas carols are usually the religious ones that you know talk about the story the first noel the angels and the shepherds and the sheep you know i i musically i'm drawn to those ones like you know jingle bell rock and stuff like to me i don't really i the emotional hit that i get from the christmas carols usually it's the religious ones and the spiritual ones not to say that I'm a particularly religious person, it's just um, that I f- find it very rousing, you know, to hear those harmonies and those beautiful songs, really.
0: I going to kind of go in on that a little bit more. When you, when you sing a song, especially like a song like that, are, and you're responding to the song, are you responding to it as a piece of music? or are you responding to it as like a text and a series of ideas series, like are you refer, are you responding to the words or are you responding to the music
2: I I would say it's not really an either or thing like one of my favorite verses is the second verse to it came upon a midnight clear
0: which i don't remember
2: right it's um <laughs> O oh, ye whose but uh, whose forms are bending low who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now for glad and gold and ours, come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, <laughs> I
2: for, based on the second line there, but you get the idea, you know, sure. it's kind of a verse for people who are toiling along the climbing way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, put together with the music, with that beautiful melody. Right. It's really moving no matter whether you're religious or not religious.
0: Did you and you did number the songs about as about half the album a cappella?
2: Um I think maybe half of it is. Um also, did you hear I wrote a song on yes. the record and also Susie wrote a song on the record. Um my song Star of Wonder has been picked up by many choirs and it's actually about to be published in the Shermer um, music catalog where Um, you know, choirs go to Schirmer Music to get, uh, you know, songs for their um, holiday or any kind of programs. So Star of Wonder is a real interesting one because it's just three parts and it's really, if you listen to it lyrically, it doesn't really say anything that's Faith based. It's more of a question. You know, it's it's more of it's the the shepherd looking at the star and asking the question: Should I follow the star? Right. And the song doesn't answer the question.
0: Ah ah ah. Why write a Christmas song?
2: Oh, well, that's a good question. We had this uh, caroling group called The Caroling
0: Carolers.
2: (laughs) And you know what? You can go on, I think on Amazon, and you can find The Caroling Carolers CD. There was a CD. A Japanese company approached us and wanted to make a record of The Caroling Carolers. We used to go, we were the kind of the original flash mob. We used to go in New York City, we'd get on a bus and break out into the Christmas songs. And there were eight of us when the group was at its largest. And so the, the uh, Japanese company, they wanted an original Christmas carol. So three of us in the group wrote a Christmas carol. And Star of Wonder was written at that time.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah. So to circle back to where this started, why are so many of the songs acapella?
2: Oh, well, we took a lot of the acapella ones on We Three Kings came from a book, um, a song, Christmas Carols, arranged by Gladys Pitcher. I don't know who that is, and I don't know whether she was living or is or was. I mean, I know she was living at one point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, so we, we had this, you know, three-part Christmas carol book, and we took our arrangements out of the Gladys picture book pretty much I mean, it might have been a four-part arrangements and we made it into three, but we that's what, where we took it from. And then when we did the street singing, uh, we didn't bring a guitar with us. We just, a cappella.
0: And you simply liked them so much that way? You thought that was the way to take them forward? The way well, they were them? really,
2: they almost sing themselves when you really know the parts. You know, you don't have to wait for the, guitar or the piano or something. And then, of course, we got into doing the Hallelujah Chorus a cappella, and that became a big number in our show. People really loved, you know, to hear that just kind of, was like a roller coaster, you know, we just like sang it without those horn parts, and you know, and without the, and in fact, on the sheet music for that, it said, not to be sung a cappella. (laughs) <laughs>
0: did you now? Do I remember correctly that you used to do a regular Christmas show?
2: Oh yeah, we did, and the caroling carolers used to go around the city, and we would always end up at the arch in Washington Square Park. And this tradition, uh, Barbara Marillo, who was one of the caroling carolers, she and I have kept this tradition going. This. If we do it this year, this would be 49 years, almost 50 wow. years, the first, the first one was 1973. And we've kept it going. Of course, the last two years, we didn't do it because of COVID, but I'm hoping that uh, we can kind of reassemble. And it's just caroling, it's underneath a uh, Washington Square arch and people have um, heard about it, and so a lot of people who are in choirs come to it and look forward to it. It's just Carolyn. We don't have like a permit or anything like that. We just I announce what the date's going to be on Facebook, and then people show up, and you get these interesting um, sounding versions because people have learned parts from the various choirs that they're in, you know, and we do. The Hallelujah Chorus Under the Arch every year.
0: That's awesome.
1: Here we come, a caroling among the leaves so green. Here we come, a wandering so fair to be seen. Love and joy come to you, and to you, glad Christmas too. And God bless you and send you a happy new year. And God send you a happy new year. Good master and mistress, as you sit by the fire, pray think of us poor children.
2: We once got chased from Trump Tower. Oh,
0: that's awesome. (laughs) Oh, that sounds so so on brand.
2: We were asked to leave. We were standing in front of the Trump Tower, and some guards came by and told us we had to move. That's funny. The other thing is, you know, the Roach's Christmas uh, show, which we did every year at the bottom line, and then it moved into Town Hall, which was a larger room. But the premise there was we asked different friends of ours to write a Christmas song. And there's a lot of this on YouTube. You can go on YouTube. There's a whole segment of the Caroling Carolers from the Roach's Christmas Show and then there's different people. David Massingill has a great song called "Jesus, the Fugitive King" that uh-huh. he wrote, and that you can hear that on, on um, YouTube. So people would write an original song, and uh, and that was what our Christmas show was. In addition to the traditional songs, which the caroling carolers uh, did.
0: Oh, that's great. There's a
2: great version of of uh, Good King Wenceslaus on YouTube from our Christmas show. And Suzy is sort of introducing the song. It's a, it's a really a great introduction. You know, Suzy was really talented at... Uh, she would do these long sort of um, narratives to set the songs up, you know, and she uh, was really good at it. And the, the Good King Wenceslaus one... That's on YouTube is that that's a good one.
1: Good King Wences lost the out on the feast of Stephen Wen.
0: Thanks to Terry Roach for the time and the talk. Can You See That Sun is on sale now. This is probably going to be the last 12 songs for a while. The numbers consistently show that even though I hear these conversations as being about music and something that's of interest all year long, listeners return during the fall. I can fight that, or I can return to the fall with them. So, 12 songs will be back in the week after Labor Day with another season. That's the plan, The who knows? If something comes up, I may get a hair and jump back in the game before then, maybe for Christmas in July or something like that. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays. We'll finish with one more from the Roaches' We Three Kings. This is their version of the First Noel. Talk to you soon.